Hello, it's Host Unknown, bringing you This Week in Murder. Let's get started. January 1st, 1963. 15-month-old Sandy Gerberich was murdered in her Phoenix home. She was murdered by her live-in babysitter, Betty C. Smithy. Betty, Sandy was the youngest of four children. Betty was entrusted as a live-in babysitter so that their mother would be able to work and provide for them. Betty had answered the advertisement in the newspaper only a week prior. Before we look deeply into the murder, we need to understand Betty's early life. Betty was one of seven daughters. At the age of four, her father died, leaving her mother the sole provider for all of her children. Her mother was unable to take care of her children and was considered unfit by the state. Consequently, her girls became wards of the state. At this point, Betty would grow up to never see some of her sisters again. Between the ages of four and eight, Betty moved in between orphanages and foster homes. When she finally reached eight, she was adopted. But only three years later, at 11 years old, she was returned to the orphanage with claims that she had been physically abused. In addition to being taken away from her mother, she was also a very sickly child. She had survived polio and rickets and was oftentimes very malnourished. In addition to that, she had a speech disorder and was legally blind without her glasses. Her life was less than ideal. During her teenage years, Betty became a habitual runaway bouncing between her sisters and aunts from time to time. Once on her way to Dallas to visit one of the said aunts, she was arrested. When she was arrested, she attempted suicide. Before she even turned 16, her sisters have given up on her and didn't try to rehome her. She ended up in the Oklahoma State Hospital for the insane, where she very characteristically ran away from. During an interview with the Arizona Republic, she stated, I wasn't settled. I ran away a lot. Surprisingly, the runaway mentality translated to her time in incarceration. We'll get to that a little bit later. In 1958, she met a psychologist that believed she could be reformed. The psychologist made the mistake of entrusting Betty to babysit her child. Unfortunately, she was not the last to entrust Betty with her child. After finding out her mother had died of tuberculosis, in a highly emotional state, Betty ran away again. This time, she took the psychologist's child. She was later caught in Dallas, Texas, after pretending to be an abandoned wife. She was convicted of kidnapping and split her four-year sentence between Utah and California. She was paroled in 1962 at the age of 20. Shortly after, Betty made her way to Phoenix, Arizona. While she was there, she answered a newspaper ad for a live-in babysitter. Irma Gerberich was a single mother who hired Betty to help care for her four children. While they were in Betty's care, she went to her waitressing job in order to provide for them. One week after moving in as the live-in babysitter, Baby Sandy Gerberich was dead. On New Year's Day, Irma found out her child was dead when her six-year-old son 
reported, Mama, Sandy's dead. Betty was arrested the very next day while hitchhiking, something that she had commonly done. Betty revealed to the officer, I may have used a stocking. That night, at Pima County, she tried to kill herself. During her trial, her attorney tried to argue that she was mentally ill and had a hard time establishing between right and wrong. A state psychiatrist argued that she was emotionally unstable but legally sane. On July 10th, 1963, Betty Smithy was found guilty. After getting the guilty verdict, she screamed to the court, I'm not going to prison. I'll kill myself. You watch. 19 days later, she was sentenced to life without parole. Betty was by no means a model prisoner. She had escaped multiple times. In 1974, she escaped a state prison in Missouri and ended up being captured in Indianapolis. Um, this is said to happen during some transportation. In 1975, she escaped again, this time while on work assignment. She was captured 19 days later. October 1975, she cut through a fence and scaled a six-foot wall. She was recaptured four days later. She had only made it six miles from the prison. November 1981, she escaped again but was caught a few hours later. As we can see, Betty was a habitual runaway. Even when she was incarcerated, there was something inside her that just told her to run away, get away, get out. There is a very clear record that Betty's behavior in prison changed pretty drastically. What kickstarted this was just a few days before Christmas in 1983, Betty received a letter of forgiveness from baby Sandy's mother. The letter reads, Dear Betty, it's been almost 21 years since my baby daughter died. I have thought of you often in these years. Not with hate, as you may think, but with sadness, for I forgave you many years ago. Since I have come to know the Lord, I felt I could write and tell you that I forgive you. I'm sending you this Bible and hope that it will bring you peace and hope. May the Lord bless you and give you the peace and the strength to know that Jesus loves you very much and is always there when you need him. Signed, Irma Gerberich Simmons. During her time in prison, Smithy was denied clemency twice. In a letter to the judge, Deanna Lee Harris, Smithy's older sister wrote a letter saying that Betty could have lived a much different life if she would have ended up in a loving home like she did. Um, this kind of goes back to the whole theory of nature versus nurture. Deanna Lee Harris grew up to live a very normal life, whereas Betty, who had had to be placed in and out of foster homes who, while she was there, suffered abuse both physically, emotionally, and sexually, how that kind of steered her off the right track. What's also interesting about Betty's case is that because she was sentenced between 1912 and August 1973, the law states that they can only be eligible for parole if the governor commutes the sentence. It's what's known as the old code lifer. However, finally, 
in June 2012 by Governor Jan Brewer, Betty was granted clemency. Betty was released after spending 49 years behind bars on August 14, 2012. At this time, Betty was the longest-serving female prisoner. Some speculate that the reason she was granted clemency is because during her time in jail, she had a myriad of health issues, including breast cancer, and that the higher health care costs make prisoners over the age of 50 about 68k a year to incarcerate, which is twice as much as the average inmate. With that being said, when she was released by prison, she reported to the Arizona Republic, it's wonderful driving down the road and not seeing any barbed wire. I'm, I am lucky, so very lucky. After her release, Betty went to go live with her niece in Mesa, Arizona. January 2nd, 1951. The world is introduced to William E. Cook who is also known as Billy Boy, our cockeyed cook. For four days in early January, he held the whole country captive, curious about his next move and outraged by his crimes. Cook, who is from Joplin, Missouri, is described as pimply face and has a right eye that never closed. His right eye was the result of a botched operation to remove a congenital growth from the eyelid. The deformity led him to incessant teasing and bullying, and is believed to be one of the main reasons why he developed such an aggressive mentality. When he was fresh out of reform school, he ended up in jail. While he was there, he nearly killed an inmate with a baseball bat. In late December, his crime spree begins. Billy was posing as a hitchhiker. He was then picked up by Texan Lee Archer. They had traveled all the way to Oklahoma City. When they were there, Billy forced Lee into his own trunk. Unable to drive a manual transmission, Cook ended up getting stuck in a ditch. While he was there, he was frustrated. Miraculously, Lee was able to pop the trunk, run out, and survive. This was key in alerting authorities that something was wrong. Frustrated, after having to ditch the manual, he hitchhiked again. Happenstance would be that he was picked up by a family of five, the Mosslers. Carl was 33, Thelma, 29, their three children, Ronald, 7, Gary, 5, and Pamela, Sue, who was 3. They were on their way to a family vacation. They also had their dog with them. Quickly after, William took the family hostage. He made them drive aimlessly he made them drive aimlessly through four states over a 72-hour period, this whole time threatening them with violence and potential murder. Could you even imagine being stuck in the car for 72 hours with somebody demanding you that do what they say or they're going to murder you? While he had the family in the car, he saw a police officer 
Apparently, this is what triggered him to kill the family. Shortly after this, he killed all five of the Mosslers, just outside of Joplin, Missouri. What did he do with the bodies? Well, he took all five of them and shoved them down a mine shaft, which is eerily reminiscent of his childhood. He killed the family with a 32 caliber snub-nosed pistol. In addition to the five members of the Mossler family, he also killed their pet dog. Later, the Mossler's car was found in Tulsa, Oklahoma. It was abandoned. Cook was not the brightest. In the Mossler's car, he had left the receipt for the gun he had, he had purchased that was used to kill all of the family. This was all that was needed to begin the manhunt. Cook was very aware that he was a wanted man. He made his way to California using a mixture of hitchhiking and buses. He had reached Blythe, California by January 6th, four days after the murder. While he was there, he kidnapped a deputy sheriff and forced him to chauffeur him around. To the sheriff, he was very blunt and even bragged about his recent murders. He had let the sheriff know that he was going to kill them and that there was nothing he can do to save himself. However, almost suddenly, after a conversation with the sheriff, Cook let him go. We would later found out that Cook revealed that the deputy's wife, who he had briefly worked with once, was kind to him and that, quote, treated him like a human being and had been nicer to anyone had ever been to him in his life, unquote. After letting go of the sheriff, Cook used the sheriff's car to pull over Robert Dewey. Robert Dewey, Robert Dewey, was not nearly as lucky as the sheriff. Once being pulled over, Cook pulled him out of his car and killed him almost instantly, execution style. Robert Dewey. From here, Cook headed to Mexico and in the interim kidnapped two men, James Burke and Forrest Dameron. Cook kept the men alive until his ultimate capture. Um, the men reported that they were afraid to escape because they could not tell when Cook was sleeping. The reason being, his troubled eye was always open, so they never knew when he was actually sleeping and were petrified to even attempt to escape. Cook was captured in the small town of Santa Rosila by the chief of police, Luis Para. At this point in time, Cook's face had been plastered all over the country and Mexico by the FBI. There was an active manhunt, and Cook was a very, very popular man at the time. All eyes were looking for him. He just so happened to be caught in this small Mexican town. Unsuspectedly, when you see the photos of him being captured, he looks pretty stunned. The two captives were unharmed. After his capture, he was extradited to the United States. I think it is also worth pointing out that during his capture, 
one of the men who helped arrest him was smoking a full cigar during. Cook's first trial was for the murder of the Mossler family. Everybody wanted and expected the death penalty. Since the kidnapping of the Lindbergh baby, these charges typically meant the death penalty. The judge, who tried the case without a jury, gave Cook 300 years that included the possibility of parole. There was a huge backlash, as many wanted and expected the death penalty. Those who wanted the death penalty would not have to wait very long. After his first trial, he was extradited to California, where he was going to be tried for the murder of Robert Dewey. In November 1951, it only took the jury 50 minutes to find Cook guilty. During this time, Cook reportedly smirked as he got the death penalty. On December 12, 1952, in San Quentin Prison, William Cook met his end. His last words were when he stated that he hated everyone's guts. It has also been reported that he eagerly inhaled the cyanide fumes as if he was ready to die and that his hard luck had finally come to an end. Mid-December, his body was displayed at a funeral home in Oklahoma. 15,000 people viewed the body. Just truth that true crime has always been very popular. Now it's just more commercial. Ironically, his body was buried in Peace Cemetery in Joplin. Cook's murders had a really huge impact on popular culture. Life magazine had a five-page spread that included pages of him, his victims, and locations of his murders, as well as a map of his route. It was one of those things where people just dove in and were obsessed. This also helped lead to his capture, just the sheer buzz around a spree killer. You have to remember, this was in the early 50s. This is, unfortunately, today, we have lots of instances of spree killers. Um, back in the 50s, it wasn't so common. So this was a pop culture changing moment um, between him and Henra, this kind of set the tone for a lot of killers and spree killers to come after them. People weren't used to the idea of a killer killing just to kill, and it's very clearly that's what Cook's motive was. I kind of feel as if he actually wanted to die and just wanted to be sentenced to the death penalty to get it over with. Um, he clearly had a troubled life. He didn't really see the beauty, the joy in it. So I think that his way to get out was kind of just to go out in a blaze of glory. I would absolutely recommend looking up the Life magazine. It's where I got a lot of my information. Um, in addition, Time also had a really good article on William kind of going into detail about him being a spree killer and how he was one of the first ones. Um, if you'd like to follow my Instagram at 
This Week in Murder. Um, you can see a lot of the photos from the Life magazine. It kind of helps you understand the situation a little bit better. It also puts a face to the names of the victims, which I think is very important. And it's one of those things when you talk about murder and spree killers, a lot of the times the victims and their personalities and the human aspects of them get lost. One of the things I had a hard time finding was any short, any sort of um, information on the victims personally. So again, this was in the 1950s and spree killing wasn't as unfortunately regular as it is today. So I think just the sheer panic of it kind of led them to not really delve into the victim's history as much as they would have today. And that, my friends, is the crazy spree killings from William E. Cook. Um, This guy, when I first read this case, I was like, there needs to be a movie about this. This is absolutely wild. And then I read a little bit more and found out that a film was actually made about it in 1953. So it was only about two years later. Um, it was called The Hitchhiker. And it was from Ida Lupino. And it's today known as a kind of a cult classic. I've never seen it myself personally, but now I feel like I have to. Just based on the sheer fact that my first reaction was like, Oh my god, how is this real? How is he this reckless? How is he this heartless? Anyway, that is Mr. William Cook. Our next murder takes place on January 3rd, 1994, in Reno, Nevada. The victims are Petty Crawford, 37, and Keith Christopher, 21. That night, they were closing down the U-Haul store. Two men came inside and viciously murdered them. They left with just around $1,900. The assailant was former employee Duck Kong Hun and his brother-in-law, Alvaro Colombro. Out of the two, Colombro was the aggressor. Just a few weeks prior to the murder, Duck had been working at the U-Haul. He was fired over a complaint placed by Peggy. Let's talk about the victims. Peggy was 37. She had only been living in Reno for a few months. She moved to Reno to get away from gang-infested neighborhood in Southern California. She was recently divorced and was looking for a fresh start. Keith, 21, had been transferred to this location only 10 days prior. Colombo was Doug's father-in-law. He had been living in the United States for 11 years and was born in the Philippines. He was the third out of eight children. He did poorly in school and left after the ninth grade. Academically, he functioned similar to a sixth grader. His father was extremely abusive, both physically and sexually towards his sisters. His mother, Lydia, is said to have been very passive to all the abuse. Colombo began showing early signs of a killer. As he was abusive towards animals, oftentimes he killed them. He was also very curious about drugs, especially marijuana and cocaine. Um, He also worked at the Circus Circus in Reno, Nevada, so that was his employment. The night of the murders was a very fateful night for both 
Peggy and Keith. The manager had called out. Therefore, they were the ones on duty. Upon entering the U-Haul store, Colombo had a shotgun and duck a handgun. Alvaro was in charge of looking over the hostages, while Duck was the one who was in charge of getting the money. Alvaro became frustrated because he believed that Duck was taking too long. Alvaro took supplies from the U-Haul store, including masking tape and twine, and hogtied Keith and Peggy. Even though Colombo had his gun handy, he chose to kill Peggy and Keith with a crowbar and a hammer. Keith was killed first most likely because he was more of a threat to them. Keith, without a doubt, died struggling. He was beaten with a hammer at least 10 times to the head, and he had a crowbar drove through his skull. We speculate that this took between two and five minutes. And during his tape confession with the police, Colombo expresses his desire to eviscerate Keith. The only reason he didn't was because he was afraid he would cut his hands on his skull. All the while Keith is being murdered, Peggy is right next to him. Peggy, covered in Keith's blood, brain, and skull, did not struggle. She was praying during the attacks. Peggy was found with a crowbar rammed through the back of her skull. Columbro, on tape. During Peggy's praying, Columbro says to her, That's good, because you're going to go to God. Peggy was found with a crowbar rammed to the back of her skull. After the killings, Colombo and Duck came together. Colombo says that Duck threw up after Colombo told him how he killed Peggy and Keith. Colombo felt like the murders were anticlimactic. The two men left with $2,400. After the murders, the police came looking for Duck and encountered Colombo. Colombo told them that he hadn't seen Duck in days. All the while, Duck was hiding in the ceiling of his mobile home. After this, they kind of went on their own little crime spree. They robbed a bank. They both robbed a Reno gun store and drove to Southern California. While in Southern California, they carjacked a newspaper delivery man. They were spotted by the police in downtown LA and a chase ensued. Gunfire was exchanged between the two. They ended up taking a woman hostage. After 9.5 hours, the men finally surrendered. During the situation, Colombo had accidentally shot himself in the foot. He claimed that this was not an act of him trying to commit suicide, but merely an accident. Upon being captured, Colombo was interviewed by the police. Um, the confession was taped. Colombo said a lot, and he claimed a lot and just generally had a lot to say about his life and kind of what brought him to that point. In the police videotape, Colombo explained that he was part of a Filipino gang based in Southern California, known as SIG. He'd also claimed to have killed other people, but those claims have never been substantiated. He said, and I quote, Wherever I go, I have to kill. That's the way I am. I am nice, and once I get what I want, I kill. And during trial, Colombo's lawyer argued that he was not sane enough to be put to death. He had previously been treated for schizophrenia and may actually believe that he is a vampire. His lawyer claimed that his IQ was only 71. While in a Nevada psychiatric facility, he was found to be, quote, competent. And while he was in an 
a Nevada forensic psychiatric facility, he was found to be competent, have an antisocial personality, not very bright, and a danger to the community. On June 19, 1996, he was convicted and sentenced to be executed. Duck had also received the death sentence. Instead of serving his time, he hung himself at Eli State Prison on December 26, 1995 with his bed sheet. This is also the time I'd like to bring up Duck's wife, Maria, who was Colombo's sister. After Duck was arrested, she killed their four-year-old son, Ben, on January 25, 1994. She also attempted to take her own life. She gave herself 40 sleeping pills slit her own wrist but was somehow able to recover her son wasn't as lucky she gave him 20 sleeping pills slit his wrist and suffocated him to ensure he was dead it was part of a murder suicide pact her and duck had had now she's been serving a life sentence at southern nevada women's correctional facility in north las vegas Columbo's mother, Lydia, took a very active role in attempting to stop his execution, even though Columbo himself has stated that he wants to be executed for his murders. Lydia claims that Columbo does not understand what ex- execution is, that he believes he'll go to sleep and wake up, similar to that of a vampire. Columbo has said the killings happened because Duck wanted to get rich fast. Um, since Duck's suicide, a lot of Colombo's family has pointed him as the ringleader and saying that Colombo was taken advantage of. However, I do find this hard to believe because the day of the murder, Colombo had actually won out and bought himself a new pair of shoes that were too big for him. That way, when he left footprints behind, they wouldn't be able to be directly tied to him. So that definitely makes me question how aware he was of his situation and what he was getting himself into. In addition to his mother being opposed to the death penalty, the Philippine government played a pretty active role. They were claiming that under the Vienna Code, that the, the fact that they weren't notified that one of their own citizens was up for the death penalty was a violation of it. They claimed that if they had known earlier, they would have been able to... The Philippine government felt like Colombo was not given adequate legal representation. It's also important to note that the Philippines are widely against the death execution um, excuse me the death penalty so a lot of people see that as their main reason for being so up in arms about it that it was more of the political statement that they were unable to make Columbra was executed by lethal injection in nevada on april 5th 1999 Columbra was ready to be executed despite his mother's his lawyers and the philippines government efforts His last meal was at 6 p.m. He had steak, rice, corn, apple pie, and Sprite. His last words were, his last words were, I regret it. And that wraps up the murder of Keith and Peggy by the hands of Colombo and Duck. I found a lot of really good information from the Las Vegas Sun, Las Vegas Journal. There was a particular article by Sean Whaley that was great. Also, the American Journal of Forensic Psychiatry, Volume 30, Issue 3, um, was really great. It just kind of went really in-depth into the case and gave me a lot of insight on Colombo and a lot of the stuff that he said on the recordings. So I definitely recommend that, just for a general read. In January 4th, 1997, 
Kim Wilson and three members of her family were murdered by 17-year-olds Alex Barani and David Anderson. The atrocity became known as the Bellevue Massacres. This pristine suburban town laid on the outskirts of Seattle and was defined by its skyrocketing cost of living. The night of January 4th, this once safe community was rocked by the murder of Kim and her three family members. Kim, 20 years old, was still at home for the holidays. She was visiting from San Diego. Kim was working hard to create a new life for herself. The night of the murder, David paged Kim and asked if she could meet. Kim, his former girlfriend, quickly agreed. Now, let's take a look at the killers, who were both 17 at the time. I found a lot of great information from the ID channel. They have a TV show called Wicked Attraction. I also found a lot of my resources from the Spokesman Review, Murderpedia, People, and the New York Times all had great articles on them. Here we go. Alex was the quieter of the two. As a child, he grew up in Ohio and moved to the Pacific Northwest when he was eight years old. Shortly after moving, Alex's parents became divorced and Alex turned inward. Before the divorce, he said he was a fast learner and incredibly smart. Alex was living between his two parents and changed schools often. He found it increasingly harder to make friends or true human connection. He became increasingly introverted and felt alienated. During his interview, David stated he used to hate everybody. And during the show, Wicked Attraction, there's actually an in-prison interview with Alex that gave a lot of really amazing insight into the case. Alex had been sent to live with his mother, an educational assistant. It wasn't until he met David in middle school he felt connected. Alex was quiet, had greasy hair, and could, could be considered grunge, teetering on goth. Alex was considered weird by many. Kim Wilson was also somebody that had expect, expressed her dislike for Alex. Shortly before the murder, Alex had had a complaint filed against him from a fellow goth, claiming that he allegedly beat her. David was the more assertive of the two. Oftentimes, he was surrounded by friends because of his charismatic personality. It's pretty clear that David was narcissistic and was able to easily manipulate people, including Alex. He was also considered attractive and had no issues with the ladies. It's very clear that David and Alex are a very unlikely pair, but that did not stop them from being inseparable. David had had a very strained relationship with his father, who was a strict disciplinarian. He was one of four boys with a stay-at-home mother. Even being charismatic, David felt that he had a hard time fitting in. David also had a tendency to be a bully. He often devalued and rejected people. Both the boys had an affinity for role-playing and fantasy games such as Dungeons and Dragons. The games had themes of eroticism and death. They often reenacted sword fights and both had sword collections. They were both obsessed with fantasy games and would often blur the lines of reality, reality and fantasy. Alex and David were informally kicked out of the Players Club for being overzealous. It's reported in many places that Alex was a huge fan of the show Highlander. In Highlander, they gained more power by chopping off other people's heads. The main character was an immortal and used a sword. 
something Alex was keen to. The boys and acquaintances were in an alternative goth scene and would often powwow at the local Denny's. There they conversed about things of the macabre and an act of self-expressionism, but it was always Alex and David who would take it to murder. And during interrogation, their friends said that they weekly talked about murder. David even had a list of people he wanted to kill. Kim was on that list. Kim found out, thinking it was a joke, but was still offended. During questioning, it came out that Alex... During questioning, it came out that David had owed Kim money and that she was getting more assertive in requesting it. David took this offensively. His narcissistic tendencies always felt that people should feel very lucky to be his friend. In 1995, both boys dropped out of high school and ended up working in construction. They were both in a lull in their life. They both had been kicked out of their family's homes and were just generally troubled. Meanwhile, Kim was making a really good life for herself down in San Diego. The night of her murder, Kim met David at a local gas station and headed to the park, just a few blocks away from her house. While there, she got out of her car with David and walked around. It's believed that Alex came out of the foliage and started to attack Kim. She was hit with a bat and eventually strangled to death. They left the rope around her neck. Alex is quoted as saying, when I, when I realized I was strangling her, I, I remember seeing her face turn blue and I just, I couldn't stop. I don't know why. I just, I felt angry, but I don't know why. The two, realizing that Kim may have told her family where she was going, decided they were going to kill the family. Bill, 52, the father was described as a very loyal and good employee. He was an accountant at a real estate firm. Rose, 46, the mother, was friendly and outgoing. She worked at a local university. Julia, 17, was a senior at Bellevue High School and can be described as sweet and shy. Rose was murdered while still in bed having barely moved from her initial sleeping po- position. She had blunt force trauma to her head from a bat and had been stabbed multiple times, including in her neck. Rose had had the tip of the knife embedded in her skull. Bill was near the foot of the bed, having suffered similar injuries to Rose. Next to the body, there was a bloody footprint that was stepping out of a puddle of blood. Julia was found in the threshold of her bedroom to the hall, it was clear, based on blood splatter and her suffering a broken arm, that she fought for her life. Alex, on tape, has said that he told Julia he was sorry while he was killing her. Kim's body was found by two young boys on bikes. When the detectives arrived, they were able to identify Kim from a check they found in her back pocket. They arrived at Kim's house, expecting to deliver a death notice. The officer... Knocking on the front door, didn't hear anything, so he made his way to the back door and found it open. He had a gut feeling to enter. He then found the three bodies. They also discovered two sets of distinct footprints, so they knew it was at least two people involved in the murders. Bellevue, Washington, and the nation were stunned. A quadruple homicide was very rare and unbelievable.
Alex was brought in for initial questioning, but didn't raise any red flags to the detectives. Five days later, after a tip from a mutual friend, Alex was brought in for questioning. This is when he began to spill. His conversation with detectives is absolutely jaw-dropping. It was revealed that Alex wanted to kill someone because he felt that his life was in a rut and that the murders happened for, and I quote, the sheer experience of killing. Alex admitted to the detectives he was involved, but would not release any information of who his accomplice was. In his interview, Alex figured the detectives knew and and thought that there was no use in trying to hide it. Based on evidence, there was two distinct weapons and two sets of footprints. Even with the information presented to Alex, he would not implicate David and has not formally implicated him to this day. It's very apparent from his interviews in Wicked Attraction that Alex is a very loyal friend in person, to a fault. Before the murders, David's friendship was the only tangible, meaningful relationship that Alex had had. David was picked up next. There was circumstantial evidence that had implicated him. David claimed that he had only known Kim through Alex during questioning. Another person admitted that they had actually used to date. During the time of the murder, David claimed he was driving between Bellevue and Seattle. In David's truck, they had found rope that was identical to the rope that was left behind on Kim's neck. Boots and clothes were found in David's room that had tied him to the scene. There was a half-ripped black shirt that was used as a mask. The boots were thoroughly cleaned, but the forensic scientists were able to find blood of both Julia and Will on the boots. Also, in his room, there was a journal that detailed his anger towards Kim. While searching Alex's room, they found some of the stolen goods from the Wilson's house. They had also found a blood-stained shoelace in Alex's room, so there there was bloodstained evidence in both Alex and David's room, and therefore tying them to the crime scene. Alex and David had been previously open about the fact that as 17-year-olds, that would prevent them from the death penalty. They were wrong. They were both tried as adults. The two were tried separately. And during trial, Alex's lawyer tried to paint a story of mental illness and susceptibility to be influenced claiming that David was the ringleader. Alex was charged with four counts of manslaughter and life in prison without the possibility of parole. During Wicked Attraction, we're shown a clip of Alex walking out of the court after a sentencing. He was smiling and smug. During David's trial, he was presented as an egomaniac, obsessed with killing and death. He was the one that took it too far. He was very vocal about his ideals and thoughts. Many thought it was just aggressive expressionism and never expected him to act on it. David's first trial had a hung jury and focused around their circumstantial evidence. David's second trial resorted in the same outcome as Alex's. In Alex's interview, he describes his relationship to David and his strong stances of friendship and loyalty. He says, David was my absolute best friend in the world. 
I loved him like a brother and would do anything for him. Alex claims to be numb during the murders and at that time of his life. At that point, he, quote, wanted to do something that was inconceivable to a normal person. Alex claims that as he has gotten older, he understands the gravity of the situation and sees that it's unfair that he's still alive. The remorse that was absent in his youth has hit him hard as an adult. He was around 30 in 2009 when he was interviewed, and we can see that he's struggling with his past actions. Alex is currently in Clallam Bay Correctional Center. David is at Merrill Correctional Complex. They are no longer friends, and there is no communication between the two. Alex ended his interview saying about David, quote, he didn't understand me as much as I thought. So it's kind of clear in this case that both boys had a very intimate friendship. They were both really intertwined with each other, and I think that it's very clear that Alex was putting a lot more effort into the relationship, and I do really feel like David took advantage of him. With that being said, they both did still kill four people, and that is their responsibility to serve out their sentences. I think it's just something interesting to note that during Wicked Attraction, Alex actually seems remorseful. He doesn't quite understand that he's been taken advantage of by David, I don't believe, but he knows that something's not right. January 5th, 1910. We're going to look at the murder of Victoria Helston, who was an exchange clerk in Stockholm, Sweden. First, let's take a look at her murderer, Johan Alfred Anderson Ander. He was born October 27, 1963. He had served in the military from 1893 to 1894. After he was done with that, he left and never really got settled into a job. He got married and he was working any odd job between being a waiter and a hotel owner, but was just constantly failing at all of his business adventures. Um, part of the reason being because he was an absolute drunk. While he was drunk, he was also very abusive, oftentimes taking it out on his wife. He was very careless in his actions. He had also been arrested three times before the murder. So let's get into the murder. On January 10th, 1910, Victoria Helston was behind the counter. She was beat so savagely that she later died. Johan had stolen 6,000 Swedish kroner. And that in today's terms, in American dollars, that's about $17,000. And during the robbery, he was staying at a hotel named Temperance. He was actually outed by an employee. An employee had noticed a man was acting very strange and carrying a bag in a very strange way. Inside that bag is where Johan had kept the murder weapon. The murder weapon was a steelyard balance, which is a bar with a fixed weight attached to one end. The hotel employee had alerted the police of Johan's weird behavior. When the police arrived, his hotel room was searched. His suitcase had contained a lot of incriminating evidence, including Victoria's wallet. In addition to that, there was a ton of blood-stained money. 
This was all the evidence that the police needed to arrest him. During his trial, Johan claimed that he had received the money from an unknown foreign man. He had never admitted to the crime. He was sentenced to death. He tried to get clemency, but that was not granted by the king. Johan was the last person to be officially executed in Sweden. He was executed by guillotine, which was acquired from France. And the execution took place on November 23, 1920. It was done by executioner Albert Gustav Dahlmann. Johan had tried to say last few words, but never had the opportunity. It's unclear if Albert didn't hear him or simply didn't care. The execution went off without a hitch. Alfred was really one of the best executioners that we've ever seen. The autopsy concluded that he had suffered from tuberculosis and that he had also had a large piece of porcelain in his stomach, likely from a suicide attempt. The years after Johan's execution, the death penalty was banned in Sweden. There were about 10 to 15 people on death row at this time. They either lived out their sentence or a great deal of them committed suicide. And that is the quick, old-timey murder of Victoria Helston at the hands of Johan Ander. January 6th, 1987. We're going to take a look into the brutal murder of Janice Sissy Williams, who was only 22 years old at the time. Sissy was the young mother of two. The night of January 6th, she was stabbed over 101 times, 86 times to the chest, back and torso, and 15 times to the face. In addition to that, she was also raped and beaten. According to trial testimony, she was conscious while many of the wounds were inflicted. Sissy's body was not discovered until the next day. The only reason her body was discovered was because her two young children were wandering around her neighborhood. They caught the attention of a passing motorist who was then led by the children to Sissy's first floor apartment. When they entered, they had found Sissy deceased. And the two young children were left overnight with their mother's dead body. It wasn't until four years later that any clues had come from this case or any indication of who did it. So for four years, Sissy's family and her young children had no idea what happened to their mother that fateful night. Henry Gibson came forward and said that he had witnessed Orlando Baez stabbing Sissy. After that, Baez and Gibson walked home. Gibson claimed he remained silent after Baez made threats to kill him too. During questioning, Baez claimed to not know Gibson, but later said that it was Gibson who actually murdered Sissy. During trial, Baez is sentenced to the death penalty. After exhausting his appeals for 15 years, Baez wants to be put to death. Baez claimed that his lawyers were ineffective and that he even had to switch lawyers once because his became sick. In 2008, Baez, who was 47 at the time, wanted to video conference with the judge to grant him, quote, an immediate video conference hearing to address motion for an immediate execution. 
His reasoning behind this and why he no longer wanted to receive the death penalty because he doesn't want to go through the mistreatment or abuse which he had been through the hands of the staff and officials at Lancaster Jail. In addition, he was also very ill from lupus, and it's very clear that the stress from being on death row made his medical complications worse. However, just two years later, he decided that he didn't he that he no longer wanted to die and decided to go forward with more appeals. He said to the court, I no longer want to be executed. For the first 15 years he was in prison, he was fighting his death penalty um, pretty adamantly. And then from the two years between 2008-2010, he kind of just had the mindset, I'm ready to be executed. However, in 2010, he turns around and says that he wants more appeals. He told the judge, Howard, that he no longer wanted to be executed. The deputy attorney general asked, asked him, you understand that you'll either win or be executed. Baez responded, I am not afraid of either one. I died 19 years ago. And this is pretty much where the track record of the case ends. As far as I know, he is still alive. I know that on June, on June 26, 2012, Baez filed a habeas petition in the federal district court. And that's the last I've been able to track down Bayes. I looked at the death penalty and, and death row to see who was there, and I was unable to find him. Um, I did get a lot of my information from Lancaster Online. Jack Brewbreaker had a lot of good information, a lot of good articles. The Philadelphia Inquirer also had a lot of good information. Um, I just wish I could have found more information on Sissy. So if anyone has that information, please let me know. I always hate to do a case where we don't really have any adjectives or stories to connect to the victim. Because the last thing I want to do is kind of overlook them. So if anyone has that information, please let me know and I'll do a little follow-up on Sissy. January 7th, 2012. Dyson Allen, a pyromaniac out of his mind on alcohol and cannabis, sets fire to an upstairs closet during a birthday party in Lancashire, England. The fire killed four under the age of 19 from smoke inhalation. Before the fire, Dyson had started a locker fire in high school and had also set fire to a local field. It is said that he used, he used an aerosol can to increase the speed of the flames. He has been accused of spraying flaming aerosols at a house party less than a year before the murder. That's when somebody has a lighter and sprays it with like a can of Axe or something similar. And like a. that's when you hold any sort of spraying can, such as hairspray, body spray like Axe, up to an open flame. And a big flame shoots out kind of like a flamethrower. Dyson, however, has adamantly denied this. He also had previously been convicted for common assault in September 2010 and had two marks against him for theft and possession of cannabis. Dyson was a friend of two of Michelle's sons. Dyson was around the house a lot. It stated that he didn't have a house on record. He had stayed over the night before the party and had a bag of his belongings in the children's room. The day of the murders, he spent most of his time upstairs. Upstairs, he was in the room that the three small children had shared with their mother, Michelle. 
they were celebrating Michelle's birthday party the night that four of her own children died of smoke inhalation. The victims were all children of Michelle's. They included four-year-old twins, Holly and Ella, two-year-old brother Jordan, and heroic 19-year-old Reese. Reese died trying to rescue his three younger siblings upstairs. The party. Michelle was the mother of nine who was celebrating her 36th birthday. Michelle and three of, had three daughters and two sons who lived elsewhere. Only one of those kids, 16-year-old Andrew, was in attendance. By midday that day, and Dyson had begun celebrating. He had been drinking vodka straight from the bottle. Fast forward to that night. At 10.45 p.m., a family friend, who was sober, saw Dyson in the kid's room. It was clear that he was heavily intoxicated. He was cross-faded and was feeling the effects of both weed and alcohol. He was in a whole nother state. As it was late in the evening, around 11 p.m. at this time, the kids were sleeping. Dyson was the only other member of the party that was upstairs. A short while later, a loud bang rang through the house and the electricity shut off. Dyson descended down the stairs and shouted fire and ran out the back door. Upstairs, the three younger children were trapped in the room filled with smoke and fire. Ella and Jordan had clearly made attempts to escape as their little bodies were not on their beds. Forensic evidence showed that the children were incapacitated very quickly. Reese, without hesitation, ran to save his siblings. The guests could hear Reese breaking down the door from downstairs. Andrew, 16, his younger brother, tried to run up the stairs, but was blocked by thick, toxic smoke. His family says Andrew is very similar to Reese, and that they are very thankful that Andrew did not meet the same fate. By 11.20, the first police call had been made by neighbors. Michelle fell into shock and maybe felt some of the fumes and didn't entirely realize what was going on or that Reese had run up to save the children. It wasn't until Reese was carried out and surrounded that she understood the gravity. She was taken to the hospital and found out that four of her children were dead. All of them have died of smoke inhalation. Dyson had been interviewed by the police and seemed cooperative. Dyson told police he was upstairs when the lights went out and just thought it was a technical issue. He had told them that he tried to open the kid's bedroom door but was pushed back by smoke and could see orange glow underneath. And that's when he started shouting fire. On his way out the back door, he yelled at Reese, get those kids out. Reese, who was 19 at the time of his death, received a lot of posthumous accolades, appreciation, and respect. Reese's family has said, Reese, who paid the ultimate price for trying to rescue his brother and sisters, and for that we are eternally grateful and proud. The fire department has also held him as a hero. Reese was extremely close to his father. His father has said that he has lost his best friend and that he wouldn't have expected him to do anything else because that's just the sort of person he was. In a twist of fate, Reese, only a few days prior, had taken down the smoke alarms because they were excessively beeping in the house. 
it's crazy, crazy to think that this could have been a completely different case if those were replaced instead of turned off. And Dyson portrayed that he was genuinely devastated by the deaths. He posted a tribute to his Facebook saying, R.I.P. Reese Smith, Holly and Ella Smith, Jordan. You all are going to be remembered by a lot of broken hearts. Reese, you was a hero to us all. That's Braveheart, my friends. Jordan, you'll always be my little boxer. Holly and Ella, the happiest twins you could see. Keep on dancing strong in the heavens, all you angels. After this, he also attended the memorial service for the children. It wasn't too long after that Dyson was picked up for questioning by the police and taken into custody. Meanwhile, forensics and their appropriate agencies were diligently working to gather evidence. The fire had started in the children's bedroom upstairs. They were able to determine that an open flame had been held, held against the wardrobe for at least a few seconds. All experts agreed, after extremely detailed investigations, that the fire was deliberate and had been caused by an open flame. The open flame was held against the wardrobe for at least a few seconds. Because there was no working smoke alarm, the fire was made known to partygoers when an electrical wire was tripped. In the ceiling, right above the wardrobe, is where the fire started, and there was electrical wires right above that. By the time the fire would hit the electric, it would already be raging, and the room would be filled with smoke. During sentencing, no clear motive came out, and Dyson's inebriated state was brought up. And Justice Mills stated that Dyson was, quote, out of his head on a lethal combination of alcohol and cannabis, and had a fascination with fire, particularly so when he was affected by drugs or alcohol. Dyson was quite emotional through the trial, often fighting back tears. Dyson pleads not guilty. Outside court, Detective Chief Superintendent Dermot Horrigan said, This has been one of the most tragic and significant cases the Lancashire police has seen for a number of years, which has left a family and a community devastated by their loss. It's important to know that extensive resources were used during this case. The family has shown their gratitude multiple times. The different agencies worked as one to help gather all the relevant information they needed. They worked in painstaking detail in a very quick manner. They even built a life-size reconstruction of the house to demonstrate how the fire would move through it. This was consistent with an extremely fast-moving fire. Dyson when he was 19, was convicted of four counts of manslaughter. And Dyson wept as he held his hands over his face. Michelle and her family members shouted in celebration. Joanne Kunliff, Crown Advocate for CPS Northwest Complex Casework Unit, stated, The jury today concluded that Dyson Allen was responsible for the fatal fire at a house in Freckington last year, in which four siblings lost their lives, and that he is guilty of their manslaughter. Dyson was sentenced to life in prison on September 27, 2013. We still do not know the exact events or why. We still don't know why or the exact events that occurred the night of January 7th. Michelle has said, Every birthday that I have will be the anniversary of my children's deaths.
And that wraps up The Careless Murders by Dyson Miller. And this is Host Unknown saying thank you so much for making it through my first podcast. Um, Really appreciate it. Plan on doing more of these weekly. And just really excited to see everything that comes to the surface, all the cases that we can cover, all the good that we can do. Um, please follow me on Instagram at This Week in Murder. I look forward to bringing you more fascinating cases that really delve into serial killers, murderers, the victims, their families, and what we can do better as human beings.